This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burroughs Memorial Day sale at burrowcom slash ACAST. That's burrowcom slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. A warning before we start. The material in this podcast is very dark. We'll be discussing violent crimes against children. We'll try to be restrained where we can. But to tell this story, we sometimes have to be pretty graphic. Ready? In the last three episodes, we told you about two killers, one in Texas and another in Michigan, hunting young men and boys in the 70s. In Houston, Dean Coral had the perfect cover. He was known as the Candyman because his mom owned a candy factory in the neighborhood and he'd hang around the schoolyards handing out his mom's candy to the kids. He was a swell guy. Then as Coral got older, the candy turned to beer and grass and parties, and he used two teens in the neighborhood to bring the boys to his place, his lair, where he cruelly tortured, raped, and then murdered, and then buried their bodies in a boat shed or beneath the sands of the Gulf Coast. Everyone trusted the Candyman. In the suburbs of Detroit, the killer picked up kids in broad daylight. In each of the four abductions, the kids willingly got into the cars. So was it a policeman? Someone they knew? Someone they trusted? Then we learned that whoever killed those kids in Michigan was connected to a pedophile ring. And one of the main players was a very rich bachelor named Francis Sheldon. Now, Sheldon used his riches to set up a boys' summer camp on an island in Lake Michigan, north of Fox Island. But it was fake. It was the original pedophile island. There was a pattern here. This was a much larger web than we imagined. We started to follow the thread, and it led us to some other trusted institutions, one that everyone thought represented everything noble. 
they poisoned that as well. From ID, this is The Clown and the Candyman. I'm Jacqueline Bynan. Remember Michael Farquhar from our last episode? Michael was the young teen who was the assistant in his neighbor's magic act and ended up being abused by loads of men after the magic show was over. Then he was abused by Francis Sheldon, the wealthy bachelor who set up the phony summer camp on North Fox Island in Lake Michigan. Michael became such a valuable recruit, he went down to Tennessee with Sheldon to explore the possibilities of setting up yet another boys' camp. It reminded me of a bus down there, of a boys' farm that was anything but pastoral. That led us to look at how it was exposed, and it opened up a whole other can of worms inside one of America's most trusted institutions. For more than 110 years, the Boy Scouts of America promised to teach youngsters good manners, useful skills, and a sense of right and wrong. And for generations of men, the key to their identity as good citizens was the Boy Scouts. That was the wholesome image the organization projected, and we believed it. Then, in 2010, a judge ordered the organization to make public their internal lists of men accused of preying on boys. The perversion files is how they were known within the scout headquarters. Ten years later, deluge with thousands of men filing lawsuits saying they were molested by their scoutmasters or other leaders decades ago, the Boy Scouts of America file for bankruptcy protection. As we investigated pedophile rings in Chicago in the 70s, we followed the trail to New Orleans and the two retired detectives who uncovered the first major public Boy Scout scandal in America. And that was in 1976, after the Candyman and before the Clown. In the 70s, before digital photographs, it was all on film. You took your holiday snaps or your graduation shots to a lab for developing. One company, Photomat, made it very easy. They set up small kiosks in parking lots of grocery stores and strip malls, and you drove through, dropped off your film. That film was sent to a processing facility and returned to the kiosk for you to pick up within the week. Now you can call it fate or you can call it luck, but a broken conveyor belt at Photomat is how this entire scandal first came to light. On August 23rd, 1976, we received a phone call in the Juvenile Bureau in New Orleans from the regional manager of Photomat Labs in Dallas, Texas. This is Frank Wick speaking. He was a detective in the juvenile division with the New Orleans PD at the time. And he said, look, the conveyor belt broke down in our lab. I happened to go out to see what was wrong with the conveyor belt. And on the conveyor belt was a series of photographs that had two adult males having sex with a young boy. And he said, you know, I traced this, where the film had come from. It came from a, a Harry Kramer in New Orleans. And that's how the case began. Gus Stansbury was Frank's partner at New Orleans PD. We were responsible for handling any major offense, either against a juvenile 
all committed by a juvenile. So here they are, with only a name and a set of photographs. We looked at the photos for several days, and there was no identifying information other than the name, no address, the phone number was invalid, disconnected. While we were looking, the lieutenant, he happened to walk by, and he said, there's a Boy's Life magazine on the coffee table. You can only get those if you're a Boy Scout troop leader or member. I said, so why don't you check out the Boy Scouts? So we headed immediately over to the uh, Boy Scout office. And they completely stonewalled us. They came out with, I think, one piece of paper and said, this is all we have. There were only two things on that piece of paper. The name of the troop, Troop 137, and that the troop had recently been disbanded. They were hoping to get a list of the boys belonging to the troop, but the scouts claimed no such list existed. But they do learn the troop held its meetings in a local New Orleans church, and that's where they started looking. You must have talked to some of the victims, some of the kids, some of the boys. Oh, of course, of course. We located, you know, many, many victims. And in talking to some of these victims and their parents, if they had parents, we were able to obtain additional victims' names. And of course, when we did, we tried to locate them. After three weeks, a picture was forming of Troop 137. Name after name revealed by the boys they interviewed all pointed to one ugly truth. Some of the troop leaders in Troop 137, I mean, these guys were pedophiles. Didn't the boys, the kids say anything? There were previous reports before we conducted our investigation of victims, of, of boys who had been in Boy Scout Troop 137. The parents, they didn't know what to do with it, so they reported to Dick Halverson, the head leader, who was a pedophile, and he says, oh, no, no, it's not, it's not, it's really not true. More on Richard Halverson in a minute, but he was the head troopmaster and recruiter, and because he was a pedophile, those complaints didn't go anywhere. You know, it was like reporting it to uh, the, the fox in the hen house. Yeah, okay, I'll take care of it. And, and nothing ever happened. And we were amazed. We were, like, shocked. And it, it wasn't only these people. It was numerous other people that were involved. After weeks of dogged detective work, Gus and Frank learned that the two men in the photos were both assistant scoutmasters in Troop 137, 22-year-old Harry Kramer, the name on the film receipt, and 38-year-old Raymond Woodall. Two other names came up, Richard Halverson, the head scoutmaster, and Robert Lang. Now, the two detectives were able to gather enough corroboration to justify three search warrants, one for a house on Painter Street in New Orleans, occupied by Richard Halverson and Robert Lang. So what did you, what kind of evidence did you find? Numerous, when I say numerous, I mean hundreds of photographs. We found hundreds of folders. Documents. Correspondence. Halverson and Lang were meticulous collectors. Yes. 
we had a room literally filled with boxes of evidence that we seized. Because the good news is, is pedophiles are hoarders. They will not throw anything away. Even if the other pedophile says, read this, where I'm talking about having sex with my victims, I'm naming names, and they say, after you read this, burn it, throw it away. They won't. They actually had file cabinets with names of a kid, and, and they'd have, I mean, an elaborate file of, you know, photographs, documents pertaining to that kid. They'd use index cards or recipe cards, if you would. Uh, they had it on a Rolodex, I believe it was on, I forget if it was Lang's desk or Halverson's desk in their residence. Yeah, we had several hundred, yeah. at least. Yeah. At least. Yeah. And what was on those cards? Was it the client or was it the kid? Various things. It was sometimes names, phone numbers, addresses. Types of activities they liked. Yeah. Uh-huh. Of course, it was all in code. Index cards, like recipe cards. Remember that, like the handcuff trick, it comes up in all of these cases. Now let's start with Richard Halverson. He was known as Mr. Dick by some of the victims. He was divorced, 51 years old, and he was one of the main ringleaders in the conspiracy. He was a juvenile court volunteer, which gave him access to files in the juvenile court. He was sort of the, the front man. He would suit up coat and tie and uh, present like, you know, Mr. Mr. Businessman. He was also involved in the formation of Boy Scout Troop 137. He was actually designated as the troop leader. And he was sort of the business kind of brains, but he's dead. Harry Kramer, he was kind of like a minor player. He just happened to make a mistake by dropping that film off. Mm -hmm. and, but apparently they had done it before. He would hang around and participate in some of the acts with the, the boys. In my opinion, Woodall was the, the main person. All right, okay, Raymond Woodall, what was he like? Raymond Thomas Woodall. He was like 38 years old at the time, very well educated. Very brilliant and, and really probably the most devious mind of the whole troop. He was almost obsessed with finding new ways to recruit victims for the organization. He was extremely devious. To me, if I had to pick the most, if you want to use the term evil, Raymond Thomas Woodall was the most evil. He's dead, by the way. He apparently lived with his mother. And as far as I know, he didn't actually have any type of occupation. He just lived with her. And in fact, several of the sex acts took place at the house when his mother was home. She was, well, wasn't aware, but you know, when you have a grown man bringing young boys into the house and you don't know what's going on, that you know, it's something's, something's wrong with you. But she defended him you know, from top to bottom. And then things get even stranger. There's this guy who was an interesting character in himself. He was in the gang, and he was Halverson's roommate. His name was Robert Lang. Robert Lang, if that, in fact, <laughs> is his correct name, we're still to this day not sure what his real name is. We believe he possibly was uh, Central Intelligence Agency. Why do you think that? That's odd. I mean, it's significant. We found photographs of him in a Marine Corps uniform. 
Army. Army. Navy. Navy. And Air Force. And that's impossible. I was in the Army during the Vietnam era, and he had DD-214s, which are your discharge papers. It's the official document. And he had DD-214 saying he was an officer in all four branches of the military. That's impossible. And he also had photographs, eight by 10 photographs that we seized of him in the respective uniforms of the four branches of the military as an officer grade. That's impossible. And he was stationed supposedly at the Marshall Islands, which from what I understand, it has a lot to do with uh, atomic weapons. And he had numerous photographs of it. it looked like switchboards and lights. And he got a sweetheart deal. He was one of the only ones that got probation, and he was one of the worst of the worst. One of the things that comes up again and again in all of these pedophile rings, the rich, the connected, the insiders, they all get off easy. Who knows if Robert Lang was in the CIA? The point is, he should have gone to jail, but somehow he skated. For the others, you've got a businessman, you've got a professional pedophile who lives with his mother, a hanger-on like Harry Kramer, all sexually abusing the boys in Troop 137. This sounds unbelievable. And then when the newspapers got hold of this story, a strange series of events unfolded. When did this become public? Like, when did it go from your investigation to news? It was the next day after the, after the original search warrants and original arrest that it was first page news on the local Times-Picayune newspaper. Troop 137, sex ring busted, or something to that effect. And that's when the district attorney decided to get involved. And that's also when some of the pedophiles got scared. The photographer for the cell, he would take the videos and he would take the photographs of the victims and having sex with the victims. So he panicked and he threw some of his evidence that he had in his studio into a, a brown paper bag. And in the wee hours of the morning, he drove his car onto a canal, a 17th Street Canal. And he stopped his car, making sure no cars were coming. He jumped out of his car and did a heave-ho with the bag into the water, thinking, I'm safe. The evidence is gone. Remember that broken conveyor belt at the photo mat? The one that accidentally revealed the pictures? What happened next is even crazier. And this is when, whatever you want to call it, fate, serendipity, it intervenes. Because at that particular time, a giant lily pad is floating down a canal. The bag lands on a lily pad. It doesn't sink into the water. The lily pad supports the bag and the contents. The next morning, a police officer that Gus and I knew, who was in uniform patrol, he's out fishing with his nine-year-old son the lily pad floats by with the bag on it. The boy's bored. He hooks it with his fishing pole, brings it to shore. Dad retrieves the bag, looks inside, sees eight millimeter films, other photographs and documents. He said, this must tie into Gus and Frank's case. And he calls us. To me, that's a million to one shot. The lily pad cache contained film evidence of these guys having sex with these boys on an official scout camping trip. But it's not just that. 
it was evidence of the national child sex ring we've been describing in all of these stories. From Dean Coral the Candyman to the fake boys camp on North Fox Island to Christopher Bush in Oakland County, Michigan. And later will show up in Chicago, where John Wayne Gacy the killer clown was trawling for boys in the 70s. Once again, no matter where you enter the story, you get to a national pedophile ring fast. In this case, detectives unearthed the national child sex operation via the innocent-sounding Boy Scout Troop 137 in New Orleans. As Harry Connick Sr., the DA in New Orleans, yes, the father of jazz singer and pianist Harry Connick Jr., said, it was like a pebble dropping into the water. It was not in the initial phase by any means. It was far advanced. Oh yeah, it was uh, too many documents, too many photographs to have just started within the past few months. It was obviously going on for several years. Yeah. They will infiltrate wherever it needs to go, whether it's a school, whether it's a church, whether it's a Boy Scouts, whatever means necessary. And these guys in New Orleans, they were good. 
Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first-ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. A national pedophile and child murdering in the 1970s was discovered again and again. But the nation isn't tuned in to the scale of the problem. There's no national sex offender registry, DNA is years in the future, and there is no internet. And back then, the media played down the problem. It was a common tactic. Also, state and federal law are not up to date. Each time child abuse is discovered, It's considered a local issue and it's limited to a few bad apples. Retired New Orleans detective Frank Wicks has an interesting take on how these pedophiles hide in plain sight. He compares them to terrorist cells. The violence might be different, but in terms of being like a sleeper cell where they're there and the general public doesn't know about it, I think it's probably an apt comparison They would infiltrate organizations like the Boy Scouts, like Big Brothers, police departments. They would try to worm their way into a unit that had child victims, particularly runaway types or street-type children. Gus and I had to put three police officers in jail during our career who were pedophiles. They would infiltrate child welfare services, suiting up, looking good, and saying, you know, we'd like to be foster parents. For example, in this case, Um, When we executed the search warrant and arrest warrants at Richard Havison and Robert Lang's residence on Painter Street, they had two little boys who were with them. And I believe they were maybe four or five years old. They were from Plaquemines Parish Child Welfare. They were going to keep these two little boys and they were going to take care of them in their home until they became their age of preference, and then they would start molesting them. So they actually were real close to obtaining a federal grant to open up their own home. And the people who supported the grant were some pretty well-known people in government in the city of New Orleans. Alvis, he actually worked for the New Orleans City Council. And they had some strong support from powerful people. What started with Troop 137 expanded to a much larger network of businesses set up for the purpose of child sex tourism. They set up their own companies, if you will. For example, they had Adelphi Tours. If you're a visiting pedophile and they know you're coming, then when you get to town, they're going to have transportation lined up. They're going to have hotel accommodations lined up. Everything will be ready for you. Adelphi Tours. And then they also had Adelphi Academy, which was based in Coral Gables, Florida. They would suit up, coat and tie, they would go to the poorer neighborhoods, and they would approach them and they'd say, look, we know little Johnny or little Joey, he's really having a hard time in the public schools here. We can send him to Adelphi Academy in Coral Gables, Florida, and look, we can put him on a full scholarship. They would use every means possibly to coerce the parents to sign on a dotted line. 
at which point the child would be shipped to Coral Gables, go to the academy. Both Troop Leader Richard Halverson and Assistant Troop Leader Raymond Woodall had spent time in Coral Gables at Adelphi Academy as maintenance men. When Halverson and Woodall settled in New Orleans, they cooked up this scheme with the school. The parents might have thought their sons were getting the best care, but those boys were essentially held captive. No phone calls and constant supervision. This was very much established. And of course, pedophiles who were working at the school would have sex with the boys. Now, just to be clear, Adelphi Academy in Coral Gables was sold to new legitimate owners in June of 1976, and neither the school nor its owners were ever implicated in any further crimes. Remember earlier Frank said pedophiles are hoarders? I never expected to hear about this kind of hoarding. These guys collected some strange things, and it is tough to hear. I don't want to sound crude, but they would take a urine sample and put it in a little bottle and label it. This was Joey, age 12, and this is his urine sample. But it was a collection of urine samples. Again, this is 1976. No cell phones, no internet. A secret was much easier to keep hidden. So the other question I had for the detectives was, how did these guys procure their victims? They would offer money, they would offer educational opportunities, they would offer other inducements, bikes, motorcycles, and they would go down to the French Quarter usually to look for runaway boys. Also, one single mother who was an alcoholic, they actually purchased the four sons from her for a sum of $10,000. So the laws were different back then. It was a minor misdemeanor to sell your children. More than 100 years after the Civil War, children were being bought and sold in the French Quarter in New Orleans. Even now that the laws have changed, it still happens. As recently as 2013, a young woman was arrested in Mississippi for trying to sell her four-month-old baby on Craigslist. It was really overwhelming. Gus and I, this was our first major pedophile investigation. We realized that it was not only national, but it was international. I mean, we had pedophiles that we identified in Bermuda, in the UK, in Australia. Germany. Czechoslovakia. It was all over the world, and we realized that this was so big, and we would ultimately identify numerous people. For example, an Episcopal priest. His name was Father Bud Vermal who was running the Boys Farm in uh, Mont Eagle, Tennessee. When we contacted Tennessee Bureau of Investigation, they immediately started an investigation. We've heard that name before. Remember the previous episode when Michael Farquhar was abused by Francis Sheldon on his pedophile island? Michael was pretty sure he visited a boys camp in Tennessee where the abuse would continue at the hands of Vermeil. Francis Sheldon got away with it. He flew off in his private plane out of the country, leaving his fake boys camp in Michigan and Tennessee behind. What's important about this case was that detectives in New Orleans didn't stop with Troop 137. They caught men all over the country. They exposed the ring. Three other individuals that we were able to prove 
had victimized some of the boys from New Orleans. Two of them were multimillionaires from Waltham, Massachusetts. They would actually set up a date, and it was like a holiday type deal, weekend, week, or whatever. And they would set up a young boy to spend the time with these pedophiles. The facts that Frank is about to tell you were reported in the Times-Picayune newspaper at the time and syndicated in newspapers across America. Later, the charges against the men we're about to name were discussed in the 1977 congressional hearings against child exploitation. Richard uh, Jacobs, who was a multimillionaire from a suburb of Boston, the owner of Jet Spray Corporation, and at that point, he was supposedly a minority owner of the New England football team. Very well connected politically in Massachusetts. He was treated like a VIP by other pedophile organization members when he would come to New Orleans and stay at the Marriott Hotel on Canal Street. And he was arrested by uh, the Boston police, who did a great job, and arrested and transported to New Orleans. Newspapers reported that Jacobs was charged with 15 counts of aggravated crimes against nature. He was held on half a million dollars bond. He paid it out of his pocket. He posted $500,000 cash, took it off a money belt around his waist, and was never seen again. Years later, in 1988, the UPI news agency confirmed his disappearance and fugitive status after Jacob's own family tried to have him declared dead in court. The court ruling states that he was rumored to be in Central America or Europe. If he's even still alive, he'd be 95 years old. But Jacob's, the one-time part owner of the Patriots, had a friend with him. Jacob's friend was a guy by the name of U. Scott Mellor. And again, he was a multimillionaire from the Boston area also. He was treasurer and majority owner of a, a business called Reservoir Manor Corporation. And he was very well connected politically also. They made trips together to New Orleans. Mellor, uh, as opposed to Jacobs, was married and had children. And he participated along with Jacobs in parties at uh, in New Orleans, and he stayed also at the Marriott Hotel when they came, you know, basically invited by the local pedophile cell, you know, to come on to New Orleans and we'll hook you up with victims and whatever else you need. There was another multimillionaire who had brought a victim from New Orleans to his yacht in San Francisco Bay, and he was convicted also, arrested and convicted. So we had millionaires. We had some pedophiles from the Chicago area who were, best of my knowledge, never arrested. Some jurisdictions, yeah. you know, you give them the information, you just never heard anything. All of this information came from those files. Everything, they saved every piece of Everything. paper. One of the things that we realized early on was that Pedophiles are not like other criminals. Most criminals, if you say, for example, uh, an armed robber or a burglar, if they're honest with you, they'll understand that what they have done is wrong. And in many cases, they'll say, yeah, I did it. You know, I know it was wrong. With pedophiles, it's a totally different mindset. 
Not only did they describe how to attract the child, but there was also justification as to why it was okay. And Frank and I were, we were just shocked that anything like this even existed. I know what you're thinking. How can you be collecting urine samples and raping boys who trust you and shipping them all over the country to be abused by other men? How can you do that and think it's okay? I asked Gus and Frank what they thought. With pedophiles, they have rationalized their conduct and they feel like we're right, this is perfectly acceptable conduct, it's not wrong, and the rest of the world's wrong. They would actually import this belief to the victim. Mm -hmm. They're adults and they're saying, you know, this is my right to do this. Well, it must be okay. And they'd use peer pressure sometimes. Yeah. They'd have sex parties. And they would invite a bunch of teenage boys and they would use the peer pressure from some of the victims they had victimized on a regular basis to, to tell some of the new kids that were coming, hey, look, it's okay, man. You know, I do it, so you can do it. Everything Frank and Gus told us echoed what Michael Farquhar said. Pedophiles act like these kids are co-conspirators, but they're not. They really do get trapped. Now, earlier Frank talked about the index cards they'd found, the ones with names and addresses and preferences for types of boys. Remember that. It's going to keep coming up. So is this next stuff. How did they connect? They had their own magazines, if you will. Uh, they had uh, one periodical that sticks out. It was Hermes. And they had another one called the Broad Street Journal. And basically, it was used as a means to post ads into what type of uh, victim you were looking for. Well, they would use age. They would use physical description. Sometimes they would use hair colors, things like that. Code words. Yep, code yeah. words. It took us a long time to figure out what some of the code words meant, but... They know. have their own language. For example, uh, at that time, um, the code name for a male victim was chicken. And the code name for a pedophile who liked to have sex with young boys was called the chicken hawk. And if they were referred to a child as, me and my son did such and such, it's not really a son. And, and then there was some bizarre ones like the diaper pale fraternity where they were looking for babies. I mean, baby victims. And this was the fringe, this, these were the one percenters. And they had help from other organizations such as NAMBLA, a North American Man Boy Lovers Association. NAMBLA actually provided attorneys for pedophiles if they got arrested. That was one of their primary goals, to provide legal defense for pedophiles and to also advocate for, quote, changing the laws to where it was consensual sex between adult males and boy victims. And we had no idea that just from this one address that this would lead and uncover all of this information. One roll of film led to one address, 
and a gargantuan ring was exposed again. Yet national legal protections for abused children were still patchwork and unevenly enforced. While pedophiles, especially the rich and powerful, claimed through their lawyers it is a consensual lifestyle choice. What kind of guys are we talking about? Most people, when they think of a pedophile, they think of a dirty old man in a raincoat who's a loner, who's at a playground watching children. And that's a misconception. There is no one way you can classify what a pedophile looks like. No more than you can say, in America, we have one type of food. There is no profile. It crosses all economic levels, all educational levels, all professions. It could be anybody. They are patient. They may wait weeks. They may wait months. They may wait years. And they will groom and start to convince the child. And then ultimately, then they would start to have the sexual That's life. where the guideline would come in. You know, you do this, 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 until you reach your goal. These people live a dark life, a dreary, sad life. They have nothing outside of this pedophilia. And it's really, it's a dark experience. It's all consuming, even when they went to prison, like Woodall, for example, from prison, he was still actively touching base with other pedophiles outside of prison, telling them new ways to acquire victims. Think about that if someone tries to tell you this wasn't a nationwide thing in the 70s. The guys in the photomat pictures who started it all, Kramer and Woodall, Kramer got 45 years in prison. Woodall got 75 years and he died in prison. Business leader and scout master Richard Halverson got 40 years and he also died in jail. Robert Lang, the man with the many aliases, he received a sweeter deal. He got probation and disappeared somewhere in America. Millionaire Richard Jacobs, the one-time part owner of the Patriots, posted bail and fled. He's presumed dead, but no one really knows that for sure. The other two millionaires got five and 10 years each. There were many, many more who were eventually charged. In the end, there were 18 convictions across many states, even one in Australia. Notice a pattern? The so-called regular guys got hard time. The rich ones did far less or were able to flee. How did you guys do all this? I can't believe you did it all. I would say Lieutenant Rodriguez let us run with it. We had great support. We were brought over to the district attorney's office and Harry Connick Sr. had just been recently elected district attorney running on a progressive platform. And he decided to pick up the case almost immediately. Why was this Boy Scout case so important? Because it did have some impact. At the time, there was no specific state statute that would cover child pornography. And after this, we were fortunate enough to get one of the state representatives to introduce a bill which was later passed about possession of child pornography. But also it led to federal legislation. The only federal statute that was on the book was called the White Slavery Act. And it only pertained to white female child victims. Boys didn't count. At the federal level, boys couldn't be victims. Our case and other cases 
were taken up, and as a result, the feds passed legislation making it gender neutral. And so then the feds could get more involved. Actually, most people think the FBI is the lead agency. It is not. Department of Homeland Security is the lead agency. At the time, we had requested the FBI's assistance since it involved multiple jurisdictions. And we had one agent show up, and he spent about four or five hours with us taking notes, and he was like, wow. And he said, I'll be back in an hour. With a squad of agents. And we're still waiting. It's 2020. That's 40 years ago. Well, I think you guys did a great job. You exposed something and got convictions where no one had before. So for that, you should be proud. I want our listeners to appreciate what you guys did back in 1976 and 77 in a time when very little of this was being uncovered. And you guys, through serendipity in that broken conveyor belt, led to the first convictions of the Boy Scouts of America, Troop 137, and some of their customers. It was a lesson for both of us in life. Mm -hmm. You know, knowing that there was this other culture that was going on, and we had no idea. And the coldness, I think, which really affected us, the coldness of people, the Boy Scouts, individuals, who were made aware and basically said, let's keep this out of the limelight. But we ran into many, many people who didn't care or wanted to protect their organization. And I think at times just really impacted on us that, you know, people could be so cold. I think if a police officer investigates a pedophile, he or she should realize that it's gonna be a lot more than this one guy. He is going to be involved with other pedophiles. You need to locate all the victims you possibly can, interview them, and put additional charges on. And make sure the victims are still here. Yeah. Still alive. Because some of them ended up dead. Yeah. Every one of these stories from the 1970s ends up in the same spot. And we kept coming across this one name over and over. The story of Dean Coral led us to him and Troop 137. His name came up in connection with John Wayne Gacy in Chicago, in connection to the murder of two boys, in connection to cases in L.A. and Pennsylvania and Denver. He seemed to be everywhere. He was connected to pedophiles and victims from coast to coast and around the world, and he kept his network spinning for almost half a century. He used a simple card catalog to stand atop an empire of child abuse. We'll name him and tell you how he operated next time on Episode 5, The Apex Predator. The Clown and the Candyman is an original podcast from ID and Cineflix Media. The show is written and hosted by me, Jacqueline Bynan. The series producer is Tara Hughes. John White is our editor, with mixing by VO2 in Toronto. The executive producer for ID is Tim Bainey. 
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.